the Crude Audacity Podcast. for joining in today. I am Catherine Mills and you are listening to the Crude Audacity podcast, the podcast that talks shop shit and all things strategy with oil patch influencers. Today you have tuned into our 710 oil field news segment where we address current events directly impacting the oil patch. I am joined today by Anthony McDaniels of Rare Petro and we will be addressing the assault on the petrodollar. Now, for those of you who are unaware, we are in more than one oil war, and the petrodollar is a foundational and fundamental element in global establishment. And while there have been threats throughout history to unseat the petrodollar, it has only been in the recent history that we have seen a credible and substantial threat arise to uh, challenge it. That, of course, is coming from China. So we will be getting into the nitty gritty, but make no mistake about it. Unseating the USD is a threat to global security, a threat to the oil patch, and a threat to the American way of life. So it is a war we cannot afford to lose. Anthony, welcome to the Crude Audacity podcast. Thanks for having me on, Catherine. Thanks so much for being here. How are you doing today? Doing all right, sunny outside, and um, yeah, just enjoying another workday from the home office here. Well, fabulous. Hopefully, we'll be done with that pretty soon here. But before we begin and jump into it, because we have a lot to unpack in this hour, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and about Rare Petro? Yeah, so graduated Colorado School of Mines 2007 Petroleum. Worked for operators for about eight years in the last oil price war. You know, uh, when we were in 2014, we're at $100 and then we go down sub 30. Yeah. By early of 20, 2015 or 2016 or whatever it was. Anyway, during that last downturn, I uh, got downsized, decided to start up, you know, this, this firm here. So, um, Started up Rare Petro in 2015, five years ago this month, actually, and uh, started out just doing, you know, just, well, I'll just consult a little bit, this and that, you know, supplemental income. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, after a couple months of that, I realized, you know, at the time I'm pretty young, I need to differentiate. So we try to make some applications and software things, leveraging phones and cloud um, to differentiate ourselves. And right now we, we support some oil companies and professional services and consulting and we do some tech stuff but another thing we do which which is why we're talking right now is we try to hold ourselves out to be aware of what's going on in the oil markets uh, yeah. macro. um we won't want to hold ourselves out to be any kind of group of massive experts but we try to pay attention to a lot of the things that seem really convoluted and complicated to the average person even in this industry but uh try to just explain it in try to distill it down into what its essence is and and just kind of get information out there for people to digest well that is excellent this is definitely a topic that should be on the nightly news but unfortunately we are not as flashy as some of the uh the stories that are hitting segments right now however uh for those of us who are unaware how about you take us back to the 1970s and why the petrodollar came to be, what prompted it, the similarities we're seeing out there today, um, and really how it gained strength in the oil field. Yeah, and if it's all right with you, Catherine, I'll go back a little bit further. I'll go back to the end of the World War II era. Go for it. So, and this is kind of an amalgamation of studying monetary history, energy history, and all these things. Um, But at the end of World War II, the United States had all this manufacturing capability it wasn't destroyed and we also had a lot of gold because europe they send their gold to us you know we were we were the holders we were the safe harbor if you will right we were on the other side of the planet from all that chaos correct so now now we go to like 19 late 1940s and we go into what's called the brenton woods agreement which 
essentially meant that the US dollar was the reserve currency of the world. I mean, we were the kingpin after the end of World War II, no doubt about it. We were a superpower. We had all this economic capability. Correct. But the US dollar was pegged to gold at, I believe it was $35 an ounce. We and had a backing. We had a backing. We had a peg. <clears throat> so everybody in the world was more than, well, I don't know about everybody, but the major powers were like, all right, United States, boom. We were also the largest oil producer in the world. And the United States, big oil companies controlled the global oil market. They set the price. And if you, you go look at the historical price of crude, I mean, you can go back into the 1950s. It's like, two to three dollars a barrel and then 20 years later up until what we're going to talk about it wasn't even yet four dollars a barrel so everything was very flat you know there wasn't an oil traded on an open market contract like it is now um the reserve currency of the world was the u.s dollar and it was pegged to gold well the united states was waging vietnam and all these other things and essentially what started happening is france started to say, hey, you know what? You guys keep saying that we have these IOUs for gold. We want to start getting the gold because you guys are spending a lot more money than we think you can actually back. And so what happened on August 15th, I think it was 1971, is Nixon temporarily suspended <laughs> the gold window for exchange of the U.S. dollar. This has never come back. And well, that was a that was in reaction to potential. I mean, that was that was when the petrodollar started coming to be because we were we were in a position where we were facing hyperinflation and there yeah. was no backing to our currency. So it was no better than wallpaper at that point. Exactly right. So it was backed by the full faith of the U.S. government. Basically, the value of our dollar once we decoupled from gold turned into, do you want to buy our bonds? Do you yeah. want to buy again? You know, do you want to be creditors to us? Um, well, in 1971, the oil price was still $3 and 50, 60 cents a barrel in US dollars. And, you know, the Middle East is starting to send us more and more oil. And after a couple of years of this, they're like, wait a minute, <laughs> we're not. We're not going to get paid three or four dollars a barrel. You guys are just issuing debt and doing all these things. You're not backing your currency. Correct. So all of a sudden, starting in 1974, the oil price jumps like more than double to like ten dollars a barrel. Now you got to think. You spent the last 20, almost 30 years floating between two to four dollars a barrel, and all of a sudden, boom, ten dollars a barrel. Whoa. Whoa. Yeah. So there was a couple year lag effect on this, though, my dude. They decoupled it in 1971. It took about three years for everybody to say who was selling us oil. No, 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 we're going to have to sell it at a higher price. I mean, we always like to have our side of the story, and there's there's a point there. Like, oh, they tried to hurt us and this and that. No, we were trying to sell our IOUs everywhere around the world with no backing, right? Exactly. We're trying to essentially suck up uh, fake money because yeah. when the government prints it, it's uh equalizing the playing field but when we print it it's called counterfeit yeah exactly so the oil price continued to crawl up into the 1970s and and at some point in uh, the very early 80s late late 70s you know it pops up about 40 dollars a barrel i mean you got i mean this is almost a 10x increase it's pretty much a 10x increase in a decade in the price of oil in u.s dollars Whoa, right? I mean, can you imagine that now, even from the current price bench? That that would make it, what, over $200 a barrel? That oh, would be man. interesting, but I'd be very worried. Yeah, it would not be good for our longevity, i tell you that much. It might be good for a short period, but it won't be good for the long haul. Well, anyway, in 1974, and let's get to the petrodollar then. In 1974, Henry Kissinger brokered a deal with Saudi Arabia, which... We probably have a lot to thank this man for because essentially what he did, in essence, is he said, okay, Saudi, you can own your own oil company and we won't, we won't, you know, put you against antitrust laws or anti-cartel laws or whatever. I mean, you're in the U.S. dollar system. What we'll do is we'll protect you, right? 
we'll protect you because you live in a rough neighborhood. Keyword. Yeah, you'll, yeah. We'll protect you. And um, you just got to make sure that all of the oil that you transact is done in US dollars. Yes. That's the birth of the petrodollar, right? Mm -hmm. So oil prices then spike up a lot more after 1974. I mean, they didn't go to 40 until years after this. But at this point, the U.S. running a deficit, going on the global dollar, petrodollar, and it wasn't nearly as big. You know what? We weren't as bad off as a country because essentially we could export our debt. We could, oh, we'll pay you later. Oh, we'll pay you later. Oh, we'll pay you later. Somebody was sucking it up. And we were the, you know, around this whole period of time, we were still the largest oil producer in the world. We were also, I believe, the largest um, consumer in the world. Yes, at the time, yes. And you know what? It, it worked. And then these oil prices jumped up really high in the late 70s, early 80s, and then they tapered down. And then we had the big crash, if you will, of, of the 19, mid-1980s, mm -hmm. when oil decides to kind of fall off a cliff and go back down to, you know, low double digits like 10 12 13 mm -hmm. and that, that's wti that's not the different regions and everything but um you know okay so that's the world that we lived in for a while and we go through all that and think about this when did we start sending troops over to the middle east a lot it was in the you know late 80s mm -hmm. you know or things like that ran yeah. up in the 90s yeah Yep, and so we had to kind of play protector out there. Right. So the number that, one thing that Saudi wanted protection from, just across the board, was the U.S. Though, so that was a big part of that pact, and to reback the dollar. Yeah. Yes, yes, that was a huge part, and this is a very delicate balance too, because there's a lot of things that were different back then. Uh, first of all, when all this happened, there wasn't NYMEX futures contracts that hit in 1983. Okay. There wasn't all this globalization. I mean, China was still a bunch of rice paddy farmers, you know. I mean, you didn't have, other than Europe and the United States, you really didn't have huge industrial nations consuming millions or over 10 million barrels a day of oil. You just didn't have that. Now, what we did set up, though, is we did set up that the United States didn't have to directly control the global oil market. We didn't have to have the large U.S. oil companies setting the price year after year, controlling supply every year. Um, you know, and just a little miniature sidebar, that's part of the reason why our PR is so bad in this industry is because oil is a foundational product. Everybody knows you're going to need it to make stuff, fuels and many other things. So why convince people that it's a good thing? Because you know that you have guaranteed use if you will. They can spin any video, any commercial, any way they want, but they still use petroleum to make it. Yep. And if you fast forward to now, yeah, the globe still needs it. And even if demand is down, they still need a lot of it and will for a long time. It'll always have its use. But yeah, I mean, right now you've got a lot more other global players. You've got a lot other big producers and a lot of other big consumers. So mm -hmm. it's a different playing field these days than than where we were 40, 50 years ago. Yeah, so let's jump on that actually, because now 40, 50 years ago is not today, as you said, and the US is not the primary importer and unseating the petrodollar has been an active oil war uh, ever since its establishment. But the difference is uh, India and China being some of the larger consumers, larger economies, their currency is is as volatile as can be. You don't go and invest in the rupee or the yuan uh, for the sake of you know solidifying your portfolio. If anything, you try to avoid it. But now, since 2018, and China has opened negotiations with Russia, with Saudi, Venezuela, Iran, uh, a lot of those that we consider rather contentious relationships here in the United States, they are gaining traction. So what started changing in 2018? Why did we start seeing a credible threat to unseating the U.S. dollar in terms of the oil field? 
because we basically control the reserves and the interest rates for the entire planet, people started getting tired of it. So anytime that we want is, anytime the Federal Reserve Bank changes interest rates, it affects the entire globe. Anytime they want to issue currency, it in turn affects the entire globe. And so what you have now is all these currencies are in a basket measured against each other, as opposed to backed by anything in particular. And other uh, countries around the world, uh, you know, just started saying, you know what? I mean, now all of a sudden, let's go to, let's say, the early 2010s, that period of time. Um, in the early 2010s, the U.S. wasn't close to the biggest oil producer in the world. We were on an uptick, but we weren't there. Um, and we had just came out of the financial crisis, right? And basically, it was... Uh, almost a global financial bank system meltdown because of mortgage-backed securities and crap that basically the United States sent all over the planet. Correct. And, um, you know, I mean, yeah, everybody jumped on the boat and when the boat capsized, everybody fell in together. And then, you know, they buoyed it all back up with printing more money, which was led by the U.S. Federal Reserve. And, um, you know, we're doing what we need to do to keep our currency floating, keep our deficits floating and this and that. But what you start to see is you start to see in, I think it was around 2017, you started to see that China's holdings of U.S. debt started to go down a little bit. And they've they, been planning. They've been planning. This, this is not a new thing. Um, so they made a decision to stop you know what we're not going to just have u.s debt we're we're going to go another route we're not going to do anything crazy immediately but you know what if we start exploring not doing that because you got to understand that if they're the largest holders of our u.s debt or anybody holds a lot of our debt saudi does as well that compared to the size of their economy at least if you go after the currency that's reflecting that debt you're shooting yourself in the foot. You 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 need to taper out of the bunch of the IOUs from that other country, and then after you get to a certain point, then you start tape. You know, then you start coming in and saying, "We're going to start trading oil with our currency." So and they're we're- removing us from their portfolio so that they can directly unseat the USD because active warfare is probably not an option for China. Um, and then that allows them leverage to start unseating the petrodollar. Yeah, but I would say, I would wager that there was one thing that a lot of the planet, especially OPEC, didn't fully anticipate, and that was the immensity of how quickly and how big the U.S. oil production went up. Um, so essentially, what, yeah, we have... Texas producing as much as the entire country produced in like 2009. Yeah. You know, I mean, we went from about 5 million barrels a day in 2009, I think it was, to we plateaued at 13.1 just in February, million barrels a day. Mm-hmm. And um, the first price war that they waged on U.S. shale in 14, 15, and 16, that kind of made them a little gun shy because there wasn't this, you know, runaway bankruptcy and companies failing left and right. And so they're like, yeah. And then all of a sudden we have this current situation where now there is this enormous crisis all the way, this massive drop in demand. Everybody's forced to cut in their production, to shut it in, because it doesn't matter how cheap you can produce it. If there's no tank to take it to or no pipeline, that will take it. So, yeah. So these two black swans events now, depending on what side you stand on, Russia has been planning this for a while. They've been stockpiling, uh, you know, their reserves for quite a while for the purposes of taking on Saudi. But arguably, it was for the purposes of taking on West Texas, the American oil field. And that did nothing but give China more leverage because China started backing their futures options and and then restructuring their contracts for import. Uh, both with gold and then with their current currency, which has gained leverage for the petro yen as opposed to the petro dollar. So China seeing this uh, 
black swan that is COVID-19 that they arguably are responsible for have then stepped in again to utilize the leverage for more impact on the oil field. Yep, that's exactly right. And so with the, the Petro Yuan, um, yeah, you're right. You hit a good point. It's back with doll. Uh, they're, they're trying to back it with gold. They're backing it with gold. That's yep. why it's gaining traction. And that's why contracts are being renegotiated. Yep. And as of, I think it was 2017, 2018, somewhere in there, China became the largest importer of crude mm-hmm. by volume on the planet. So they're now the largest customer. We are no longer the largest customer of, we're no longer the largest buyer. Do you right. think that's interesting considering their like their community, the Chinese community is still primarily agrarian, meaning that they only larger populations in their bigger cities are really the consumers of the amount of oil that they're importing. So are they stockpiling as well? I think there could be a lot of that going on. Um, just uh, the way I kind of envision it, because it's kind of kind of, you know, it's kind of opaque over there. They don't really you know, they don't want people to know everything they're up to. But I mean, I, I mean, I, I kind of picture kind of a perpetual, you know, think about the great work projects of the Great Depression and then put it on steroids and put it in perpetuity. I mean, government is like with the Belt and Road Initiative that yeah. they want to throughout, you know, basically half the landmass freaking planet, you know, run this massive channel of distribution and all this other stuff through Asia and over there all the way. So, you know, I mean, they have these huge public works projects you know, and they want all the energy that they can get to do it. And they're going to get it as cheap as they can. And they're going to get it as most efficiently as they can with least strings attached as possible. So they, you know, if somebody doesn't play nice, oh, I ran you, you broke the nuclear sanction. And all of a sudden our secretary treasury or treasury, you know, they get on the phone and say, hey, we're going to sanction you. Mm-hmm. All it means is saying you're not going to be able to sell your oil in U.S. dollars. Well, until China goes to them and says, hey, we'll buy your oil for you on and we'll back it with gold. Oh, okay. And that's exactly what's happening. They're undermining the USD by stealing contracts, which is essentially unseating global world order uh, through U.S. sanctions. So what does that mean for the strength of American energy and honestly, the strength of American presence throughout the United States? Because as you said earlier, the oil field and the energy market of which America helps regulate is a foundational element for all other industries in the entire world. So to undermine it is an act of war, quite frankly. Yeah. And, you know, we, we have to be very delicate (laughs) with this whole thing. And, um, you know, essentially, if people are starting to circumnavigate the U.S. dollar, and it's happening more and more, um, and they're starting to slowly, re- you know, drop U.S. dollar-denominated debt in exchange for other things, um, you have a situation where, I guess, the way I see it, it might be more important now than at any point in history since at least the 1970s for us not to lose too much energy production domestically. Because if we turn into a massive importer again, then we're going to be opening ourselves up to whatever price points that these global producers want to charge. And we aren't the only player anymore. We aren't the big producer and consumer all on our own like we were in 1974. That's that's kind of the problem now that we're seeing is that we just saw a day before yesterday that Democrats proposed another $3 trillion bill, but we've already had four relief packages approved that were just above $3 trillion. And the only potential backer of that kind of debt is China. So we are putting ourselves in more than one way at the mercy of China, who is known globally as a hostile player. Yeah, yeah, we are. And you know what we really did, I mean, uh, here's another interesting thing to look at and just go back in time briefly again. We had a 10x increase in the price of oil in less than a decade in the 1970s. But the US oil production could do no better than flatten the decline. That doesn't make sense. 
global oil production went up. Basically, we exported global product. We exported global, or we exported energy production in the late 1970s. That's what we decided to do. Ah, let everybody else drill those holes. Mm-hmm. They're going to have to exchange everything for U.S. dollar anyway. So whatever, it doesn't matter. We exported energy production. That's why it took us until 2018 or whenever we cracked 10 million barrels a day to, you know, have a new peak domestically. That's why it took so long. I mean, it wasn't, you still had, there's a lot of people could argue that, well, you know, we, we, we played out all of our fields and we did this and we did that. Yeah. And we also said that you can't produce offshore. We also said this, we also, we put so many, you know, restrictions, government restrictions in place over the last couple of decades to not produce this, not produce that, not produce this. We exported our energy production. We figured we were fine. We had a great military. Um, we had king economy. We had king currency, whatever. Everything's good. Well, today things are different. So right now, if we run the deficits that we're planning to run, I mean, what it boils down to is we could see if certain things line up, the way that they're shaping to line up, we could see that, you know, maybe right now you're paying $1.50 a gallon for gas, but in four or five years, it could be $7.50 a gallon. If our U.S. oil production drops too much, and we print too much money, and more people are slowly getting out of our U.S. bonds buying, they're, so I mean, they're, they're estimating the Federal Reserve could own two-thirds of U.S. treasuries by the end of this year. Yeah. What do you think that tells people? Oh, our currency is great, but two thirds of what we sell, we buy ourselves. What? Well, right? again, it goes back to when we print it, it's called counterfeit, but when they print it, it's called equalizing. Yeah. And the only way that, I mean, the, the reality is, is that if we accept another, let's say, relief bill and we have nothing to back it, our oil fields can't back it right now. Um, the only way to absorb that extra currency is through increased uh, interest rates, which is more money out of our pockets, regardless of how hard we work. And that's the only way to absorb, uh, you know, the meaningless fake printed money that's floating around in our economy right now. But to that point, you know, unseating the petrodollar has it's it's been happening on these larger scales, these larger economies, these bigger populations for decades. So China gaining traction and utilizing these black swan events to gain further traction, whereas something like India wasn't gaining anything. The petro rupee is almost non-existent. So what is the difference between those two, even though there are such large imports and there are such large demands for the energy sector? Yeah, so um, the, the CCP, China, uh, their government is a lot more assertive and aggressive on the global stage. They are a negative player. They are recognized globally as a negative player. They are very aggressive um, and for their benefit, right? Um, I mean, we do it too. But <laughs> India, the rupee is not recognized by the IMF right now. It's just not. And not nearly the same level of consumer as China is. I mean, it's multiples. China produces or China consumes, you know, I don't know, something like 15% of global production. I think India is five or something, four. So you have a much bigger customer with China and you have an IMF reserve currency validation with the renminbi or the yuan uh with china you don't have that with the repeat um so i think what's going to happen is there's going to be a lot more currencies competing i am not a bank expert i I, i'm not a currency expert per se but currencies you know if you study the history of things they're used until people don't have as much faith in them basically correct and you know if the in indirect link back to the US dollar is oil and we lose our seat this time too much as one of the largest oil producers, 
given the current dynamic of how these other countries that aren't so nice for us are a lot bigger players. I mean, another thing in the 1970s, what was Russia? It was the Iron Curtain. They didn't, they weren't. They well, I was going to ask you, how was Saudi playing into this? Because they made the pact, the original pact with us for our protection and our their protection from us. Russia is now a player. Mexico is now a player. I don't even know if like all the other countries of OPEC truly are uh, influential the way Saudi is. But what are the impacts of these uh, previously non-existent players that are now quite, I mean, are we going to see something from Russia with the petrodollar? You know, I wouldn't, I mean, Russia's already circumnavigating it. Russia, Russia's currency isn't not linked directly to the U.S. dollar the way that the real out of Saudi is. So Russia can basically, you know, we're going to produce the oil, you buy it from us. It, you know, we don't really buy hardly any oil from Russia from the things I've seen, but Russia is going to supply Europe. They're going to supply as much to Europe as they possibly can. I don't think Europe wants to rely on Russia, to be totally frank with you. Well, uh, they turn it off when they have this. Yeah, exactly. So, um, you know, basically what we have right now is we just have, we have so many things that are different than the 1970s. You have a lot more players that are producing a lot of oil you have a lot more industrialized nations now consuming a lot more oil you have pretty much in the atomic age hot war between developed countries that's mm, let's try to do economic war let's try and do stuff like that right let's, oh, yeah. let's try and tank their currency let's try and do this let's try to do digital warfare you know things like that uh you know but if we can you imagine what would happen with all of the debt we're creating and as fast and you know, a lot of countries are doing it too yes that's true but the one thing that set this country apart foundationally after the financial crisis yes it helped that we had the reserve currency and we could print the money but then everybody else did it too why did our economy actually grow because we produced real things we invented smartphones we produced barrels of oil out of the ground right if we lose one of those things on this next round of money printing that we're underway with with the sentiment globally that well let's circumnavigate this thing here and circumnavigate this thing there uh, you know we could see a lot higher energy prices in this country and you know it's kind of sad too because I honestly foresee a situation where you could you could see $120 oil and you won't see a huge uptick in drilling right away because the banks are going to say, don't drill that lateral unless you know you're going to pay it off in 20 months. Well, that's going to cut inventory down pretty bad. You know, oh, yes. you have to plan on that. And, and they're not going to do it unless you can get a hedge. And you're not going to be able to get a hedge unless the oil price is living up there for a year or two. Yeah. You won't even underwrite it otherwise. So... You know, you, you have these things going on that, you know, this in this industry, I wanted more people need to be aware of the petrodollar thing and what's going on, that China is trading oil. Look, it's not that we need to have the market cornered, per se. I personally believe that's an untenable situation. You can't just control. The you don't think we can control the global tap? You know, I no, I don't. But I do think we should take responsibility on ourselves to understand that energy production is a foundational thing to any modernized economy. I don't care how many electric cars you have, a Tesla 70% made of war. So you, you need this foundationally. So we have the resources, we have the talent, we have the technology, we have more innovation in this country because of our culture. We have more free exploration because of private mineral ownerships in this country as opposed to the, the the crown or the state or whatever, mm -hmm. everything. So we have the ability to continue to move forward on this and be fine. But if we just try and do wash, rinse and repeat of what we did in the 70s and use that playbook now, um, that oil price goes up and it may be good for some players in the oil industry, but others it's not. It, it, it's just such a loaded bag, right? Like, and I don't have a crystal ball. Nobody's got a crystal ball, but it is kind of scary to think about that. 
we could have a lot of inflation happening here. And this time it's going to be a lot harder to put that genie back in the bottle. Last time we just spiked interest rates really high. That's because the option now. And it's going to piss everyone off because we are first world problems. And I like my first world problems. Don't get me wrong. But if the U.S. is unseated here in terms of the petrodollar, I mean, what is the likelihood of this actually happening? Because I feel like it's becoming more and more of a credible threat, especially in the recent years. Yeah, it is a very credible threat. And essentially, my call, if you will, is that the U.S. dollar, the petrodollar, is going to be unseated. So if we don't keep our domestic production to a certain level, um, then we're going to have a lot of inflation very quick. So yeah. this inflation, the man-made inflation due to something like these relief bills or yeah. our constant uh, printing so that we yeah. can fund projects that are unprofitable in one way or another. Thank you, Washington, D.C. Um, that is what that I mean, to stop that. How do we protect the USD? How does the oil field protect the USD? How do uh, citizens protect the USD? I think that um, we have to start getting more and more people aware that you're going to use these um, hydrocarbon products, regardless of what economy you live in, um, regardless of what technology you use. Um, would you rather have them made where it's cleaner, you know, made better, if you will, here? Or do you want it? I mean, if you really care about things like the global climate environment, uh, would you rather have it, you know, made in a country like the United States than a country that well, they just don't care about pollution, <laughs> right? Yeah, everyone complains about us, but we are the cleanest. We're the front runners. We are the benchmark. And yeah, then, yeah. even if we weren't, just think about global uh, impact. So your consumer impact. And I think even in this lockdown period where we're seeing uh, air become cleaner, visibly cleaner around, like, say, cities, uh, I think we're very quickly proving that the oil field is a contributor to cleaner quality uh, environmental standards as opposed to a negative player in that regard. But yeah, yeah, exactly. So so that the PR one is the first big one that we have. We have to start talking to more people, spreading the word and stuff like this, you know, just so people understand that you need this. We didn't have to run PR before, but we still need to. And right now people are like, oh, there's no budget. But like, just talk. No, to we them. live in a social environment. There's no place yeah. to hide. Yeah. yeah, just just talk to people, get them to understand that even if even if they're living in a in a blue county even if they are the last person who would think oil is a good thing make them aware of everything that it, hey oil, <laughs> oil 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 all of it oil okay make them aware of that just talk to people right because we need that buy-in like like they say wars are lost when you lose the will of the public well this will be the same thing we have to keep people to understand you know, there's a lot of people talking about maybe we shouldn't rely so much on globalization. Maybe we should not just have everything manufactured in China. Maybe we should manufacture some of that. These are good conversations. Part of that dialogue needs to include energy manufacturing. Okay. Absolutely. And then once we get that, then we could do. You want you want to print another trillion dollars? Let's go make. Let's go quintuple the size of the Strategic Petroleum Reserve. Let's find other reservoirs and let's develop those. Let's invest in infrastructure so that we have more stability, right? Let's we completed reservoirs for storage. Pump it yeah. out later. So much we could do with all this money, money. We could actually put it into something that ensures that we have more stability. So you got to help the public understand that domestic energy production is good. And if you got to get through to them by saying, you could be paying $8 a gallon for gas in five years. Do you want to do that? I don't think so. You know, and I don't think anyone alive or at least uh, some of the younger generations have any concept of that. But to your point, a few days ago, we're seeing politicians coming out of Washington. You know, they're debating sort of this downtick. Uh, what is it? Something like a 42 percent reduction in just basic demand. And they're cheering for the death of the oil industry. I mean, we are seeing it on the nightly news, yet we are a foundational element and their fancy planes and protected neighborhoods and you know high high earning college degrees uh they they're squatting on you know uh or shaming the oil field and rooting for our death when we are 
<laughs> made up primarily of what we would consider the essential employees. And that doesn't involve a fancy degree. That involves people who know how to make things happen, understand how machines work, and you know can build from the ground up with their hands. So what are your takes on uh, the death of the oil field and what's happening? I think it was $24 this morning. I mean, even negative last week, hearing some of the more conservative commentators say that it's not a big deal. I mean, what's happening right now? Yeah, no, I, you know, paradoxically, it may not feel this way for a lot of people, but, and, and this isn't just, this is studying history, right? Study the history of energy. I mean, the, the, the great wealth of North America was all the timber for, for Britain, for the United Kingdom to build their navy ships, right? And it was all the farmland for them to, 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 to grow tobacco, right? For international trade. So wood was the primary fuel source of the planet up until the industrial age. Correct. Okay? Now, wood has a lot of uses as such. Wood is still used for a lot of reasons. It's not the primary biggest slice of the pie in the energy puzzle globally, not even close, but it still has so many uses, you know? So it's been used and it's going to continue to be used. I mean, we manufacture it essentially. We, we grow these, these tree farms for timber. So, um, you know, it's used, even though it hasn't been the primary energy source for a long time. Usually for an energy source that is incumbent to be displaced, it has to start to become scarce, i.e. very expensive. And in conjunction with that, it may not have a whole lot of uses. It might have one, like, like let's compare a barrel of oil to a ton of coal. <laughs> the use of coal, I mean, it's abundant, but its usage it's, it's very limited effective and efficient but it doesn't hit the social requirements and it's also just a lot more difficult to make various products out of a barrel of oil you can yeah, I mean, it's not as diverse it's not as diverse so if you take something in any time in history and you said this thing had huge diversity it was used in countless applications and it's abundant it's not displaced it's not totally just thrown out the window Right. I mean, whale oil. I mean, you read Moby Dick. I mean, we were making kerosene out of freaking humpbacks or uh, sperm whales. I mean, you know, I mean, I, I once you get 55 barrels of oil out of the average sperm whale head. I remember committing that factoid to memory. I mean, my Lord, my Lanta. I mean, wow, that's the tiniest stripper well produces that, you know, every couple of days for decades. Yeah. <laughs> And you'd have to send an entire fleet out, a ship of guys to go out and harpoon this thing and, you know, kill it and, you know, bleed it. Bring back only a portion. Load it up, you know, and then cut it open and all this. And, oh, my God, you know. Mm -hmm. I mean, so rock oil, you know, starting in 1859 with Sir Edwin Drake, you know, or Colonel Edwin Drake, whatever, uh, you know, that became the thing. It was more abundant. I mean, it, it was just more abundant. We don't have an abundancy problem right now. We have the opposite problem we have that is too much not enough and so essentially what that means is oil is going to be a viable industry for a very 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 long time will it be will hydrocarbons be the biggest slice of the energy pie in 100 years i don't know that but it's not going to just disappear it's got too many uses and it's too abundant i mean if we think we got a lot of oil we got a lot more times 100 in gas you know mm -hmm. So hydrocarbons, we're not going to run out. I mean, people, you know, everybody's like, well, yeah, we're not worried about it. Yeah, you were worried about it 10 years ago. We're not running out. Hydrogen comes from the sun and carbon is everywhere, everywhere. We will not run out. And it has so many uses because everything that's organic is hydrocarbon, everything. So it, but what it, about prices? It, I mean, it's abundant. We've got an oversupply. People are claiming that the negative prices were only futures impact. It's not really what it is. Oil really wasn't a negative, a negative commodity. I mean, how do you clear up that confusion? And is it, are, are we going to see an uptick? Um, you know, I don't know Should I go full-time podcasting? I mean, 
<laughs> yeah, I, I think the oil industry, like many industries, is going to have a very changed landscape. Um, I think there's going to be a huge consolidation in the number of people that work and how they work. We are seeing that now, yes. Yeah. Um, but to think that this is a dying industry, that, oh, it's not going to be a viable industry in 10, 20, 30 years, you're delusional. Study history. Read a book. Like that, there's no foundational, like, you don't have to be a fortune teller to study history. You just got to study, well, what happens when something becomes, you know, not used at all anymore? Well, we're not fitting any of that category. So, you know, anybody who wants to be in this industry is also going to have to be ready to digitize. And I mean, digitize, digitize. It is time to modernize this freaking industry. I mean, we have to move away from these old vertical integrated industrial oil company models my lord they're just so archaic i mean we have the technology we use in the field is on average probably it ranges between 130 years old that's cheap in, in the digital age yeah it's cheap and it's also very inefficient <laughs> i mean we do think they're just ridiculous and everybody's worried about protecting their data and protecting you know protecting their their special little maps and stuff come on guys we know how to drill wells. Everybody knows how to drill wells now. Everybody so, knows. So how we do. Do. What does the industry do? How can we make this a nightly news segment? Because the impacts that are happening in the energy sector and in the oil field are affecting everyone dramatically. Whether or not you agree with us, whether you're totally keep it in the ground, the fact is, is that when the oil field is hit, you suffer. And we are in that state right now. So how do we make this a regular topic of conversation and how do we get the word out there? How do we even talk about the impacts happening on the petrodollar that are deliberate, intentional, and dangerous? Well, you got to win hearts and minds, right? And you start by winning the heart before the mind. So, you know, everybody's now talking about, you know, do we want to rely on China to pro provide all of our medical equipment, right? No, they withhold it from us purposely yeah, in exactly. other countries. Well, I mean, guys, 80% of what you see in, a, in an ICU room is made of oil. Mm -hmm. So if you want to protect your ability to keep people healthy and safe, you know, to give them the medical devices, to give them the medical treatments, to give them medical facilities that have all of the necessity of sanitation and everything that's modern, you know, plastics, if you will, um, things like this, you have to make that out of oil. So if you want to keep everybody healthy and safe and not rely on another country, then not only do you need to worry about the product itself, like the PPE, but how are you sourcing the making that product? And that's where you, that's, I think, where you start to bridge the gap in somebody's mind. Like you, you, you mix that in with, uh, Hey, do you want to pay $8 a gallon for gas in five years? And I think maybe people will start to think differently. I mean, you're not going to win. You've got a third is over here. A third is over here. And then you've got this middle third. It's a political, it's political theory. It's been around for a long time. And what you're trying to do is you're trying to get that middle third. You're trying to get them to lean, right? So you're going to have people that are just there on one side or the other, and, and you're not going to reconcile that. But it's that middle third, right? The people that if you have a conversation with them, I mean, you're, you're just, you're, you're at a, anybody in your family or circle of friends and say, hey, you know, just drop an idea, drop a this, drop a that. Uh, I mean, look, it's either, it's either going to be that, or we're just going to have to live with a lot less con control with our currency. And could lead to more wars and and uh you know, i mean it's i i think it's a rebirth personally i'm not all negative about all this i think there's a lot of good things that will come out of it um i i think the permanent kind of step down in per capita energy consumption is here like it's actually been occurring for about 20 years in the united states per capita energy consumption has been dropping yeah and so to, to think that the globe's going to have to utilize I don't know, 200 million barrels a day. I don't know if we ever get there. But the good news about that is we can supply what we have been supplying for a long, long time. It's got a lot of uses. We just want to make sure that we can supply some of it ourselves. And you just got to make this personal for people. 
Do you want that hospital room to be clean and have modern equipment? Yes. Do you want your solar panel to be made right? Do you want your electric car to be made right? Do you then want your wind turbine to turn on? Yeah. Do you want your, your internet to work right? Do you want your computer to work right? Your, your, your smartphone to work right? Do you want to be able to drive anywhere and not spend a small fortune in fuel to do it? And I think any person would say yes to all of those, mm -hmm. you know? And so that's the kind of conversation you, you gotta have. Um, I am confident that we're gonna come out of this even better than when we came into it. It's just a huge, fast rip of the band-aid. Well, you know, I would encourage everyone listening um, to go out to vote for energy and vote for the energy sector, especially now that we are in election cycle right now, even though you want to call it unprecedented times, sure, whatever, up to you, but get out there and vote for the security of the American future. And the way to do that is through the oil and gas market. So. Anthony, thank you so much for taking the time, taking us through the history of the petrodollar, what the assault is on it and how it's been building. It's something that everyone needs to be paying attention to and doing what they can to protect. So thank you so much for the value you provided today. Yep, and we'll have some documentation. In fact, I had my team of guys put together some information on this in addition to what we had already done. Excellent. About this. So we're gonna be posting some information um, we already regularly post periodicals and information on our website, rarepetro.com. So if anybody wants to see some links, anybody wants to see some more documentation to help them kind of find out more explanation on some things that might've been glossed over, you know, make their own decision, make their own conclusion. Um, yeah, you can just rarepetro.com. Well, that's a good them. point. They can follow you on LinkedIn. They can look yeah. at the blog that you post regularly on. Y'all even have your own podcast where you know, yep. you're addressing these modern impacts on today's oil field. So absolutely, everyone get out there, check them out. Great place, great resource and great company. So Anthony, thank you so much. Um, this will be posted uh, YouTube, LinkedIn, and the podcast will be coming out next week. So thank you all to who joined and we will see you next time. Have a good one. All right. Thank you, Kathy. brought you any sort of value, go online, rate, review, subscribe. Also, if you have any topics or influencers you would like us to feature, you can get in touch with us via Facebook, LinkedIn, Instagram, or the website at www.thecrudeaudacity.com. Thanks so much for your engagement, and until next week.